you are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 High FM. I'm Rob Hutchinson. We're chatting today to Gabriel Krauss from the IOR and a, a prolific writer for, for the, for the Daily Friend. We're chatting about the problems surrounding the social grants and how many South Africans are now, now on it. Gabriel, how are you? I'm very well. Uh, I'm happy to say, but the state of the nation is not so great. Indeed, it isn't, and I, I have to totally agree there. I was, I was shocked when I saw how many people, how many South Africans are now receiving social grants. How many? What was they say? It, it is absolutely twenty-seven point eight million people on social grants. Indeed. How how is this sustainable? Well, it's not, um, and I think that from the outset, it's worth flagging something, which is that. The, the, the 27.8 million South Africans receiving social grants, which is about 40, more than 40% of the population. That is a huge jump from the, uh, 2020 figure, which was closer to 18 million. So there's, you know, there's like an extra 9 million, maybe more on there. And uh, a lot of that really is directly connected to COVID-19. And when the COVID-specific relief grants were issued, the promise was that this is going to come and go as the pandemic comes and goes. It's not so clear to me that that's believable. It seems to me that COVID-19 is here to stay. So the pandemic will end, but we'll enter the endemic endgame. And uh, I think there's good reason to suspect, unfortunately, that uh, our grants program much like COVID will never really go away. It'll just sort of change its shape, uh, but but not in a way that really helps us to dig ourselves out of the hole. But So that's the first point. The second point is that this is part of a larger trend. This is not just all about COVID. So if you don't mind, I'll just, it's difficult on radio, but I'd like to just take a moment to to read out some figures that were put in a beautiful graph for me by my colleague, Becky Mashlobo at the Center for Risk Analysis. Please do. I've and, got pen ready. <laughs> okay. Let's see, let's see if we can make sense of this. So if you look back to, to 1996, 97, which is when you start getting sort of commensurable data in the new South Africa, you see that social grants were at around 2 million people receiving it. And the number of people employed was sitting at around 7 million. So you had like three, three and a half times more people working than receiving social grants. At the same time, South Africa was in major trouble. Our debt was very high, public debt. Uh, the RAND was very weak. Inflation was very high. Interest rates were very high. But with good fiscal discipline, good policy, good social safety net rollout, what happened is that the social grants climbed by 2007-2008 to about 12 million people. So from 2 million people to 12 million people. 10 million extra people are now receiving social grants. And and I think that was that was actually a good thing. The grants were non-racial needs-based. They were going to desperately impoverished people who really had been brutalized by apartheid, were were in very difficult circumstances. And as microeconomic policy, there was a lot of growth that then comes out of that because when you're giving people who are right on the edge of subsistence a little bit extra, that's generally being well spent. So it's good for retail, basic food, uh, good for logistics, Taxis are able to, you know, take people around. It's also good for white goods. People are finally able to buy maybe a fridge or a TV or a stove. Um, 
maybe it's not brand new and fancy, but it's but it's really adding to quality of life. And on top of that, we see houses being built. We see, you know, over 10 million uh, people getting water, reticulated, clean, potable water, electricity being rolled out to 14 million people. At driving all of that, paying for all of that, is an expanding workforce, which doubles in size from 96 to 2007. Goes from about 17 million to just under 15 million. It actually more than doubles. So that's when South Africa was both growing economically and and adding substance to its social safety net in a sustainable fashion. What we then what then needed to happen is that we needed to add another seven million jobs or eight million jobs in the next decade, and that in turn would have kept the number of people receiving social grants flat. It actually would have decreased that number. So while they rose together, you needed to see the jobs continue to grow and the social grants, therefore, come down because less people need it because they're making their own money. But that's the opposite of what we saw. We saw social grants continue to climb to just before the pandemic, uh, just under 20 million people on social grants. But we saw so that it's more than doubling in that next decade. But the jobs are staying relatively flat so from 2008, when it's just under 15 million, to just before the pandemic, it only goes from 15 million to about 18 million. So you're hugely expanding the number of people on social grants. There's more people on social grants than in work from 2010, and it just gets worse. So that was the long buildup to this to this terrible situation that we're in. And then you compound that with a pandemic that's hurt even the best countries in the world. And I'm thinking of poor countries like Vietnam and rich countries like Japan. Uh, but it's on top of that, we've got 600 days of lockdown. Uh, it, we, we, we finally hit the 600 day anniversary, which is just unlike anything in any serious country in the world. 601, um, 601 today. <laughs> 601, exactly. 600 full days have passed. We're now on the 601st anniversary of a command council with no parliamentary oversight uh, telling us what to do and slashing jobs and making it very difficult for people to get into work. And that on top of all of the basic fundamentals, you know, our debt levels have ballooned, which makes this a less attractive investment destination. Gross fixed capital formation was down before the pandemic. Uh, on top of that, you've got promises of EWC, expropriation without compensation, really making this a touch and go place to try and plow your money. And, and that adds up to most people my age and younger, not having a job, not being in educational training, uh, to, to the social consequences that come out of, of having a, a deeply alienated, uh, young population that, that's just not facing serious prospects for growth. So now with 27, nearly 28 million people, receiving grants and only 15 million people in work, our work levels back to 20, 20, 2008 levels. Our population haven't grown much since then. South Africa is, is staring down the barrel of, of, you know, I guess the twin barrel of, of negative um, macro and, and microeconomic cycles. Like the worse things get, the harder it makes it to make things better as well as, as, as very serious political threats in terms of stability. And, you know, I look back at the July riots and, and the footage that I saw from that. You know, a lot, of, a lot of it was young people who just clearly don't feel like they've got buy into the society 
thinking that the the right solution is is to grab rather than to value add. Absolutely, and I think that the the youth are are well adept at expressing their their views on on social situations, and especially when it comes to comes to, comes to jobs. But what what is the solution here? Is is there a solution or any possible solution on on the horizon? I think that anyone who says a silver bullet is going to solve this problem in the next five years should not be trusted. I think they've probably gotten carried away with themselves. Um, this is, this, this kind of problem really is going to take a generation to, to, it's going to take a generation for us to get back to, you know, a not great employment figure of unemployment figure of around 8%. I think it's going to take two generations for us to get full tilt to a sort of, you know, South Korea in the 70s kind of situation, Israel. Um, not in terms of GDP, just in terms of, of, of people getting their shoulder to the wheel and getting that rewarding sense of, of a hard day's work done, getting a bit of payment and then being able to, to rest on one's little triumphs. Um, what does it take? Sorry, yeah. And that, that of sorry. course, is, is if things change today. Which we know for sure that they they are not going to change. So it's, it's I think it's you say two two decades or two generations, then I'd, I'd say I challenge you on that. I'd say it's actually even longer because we have to allow time for our government to to get their acting together first of all, drop the ideology, realize things haven't been working and will not work on the current trajectory, and then instill major change. I think that's a long call, to be honest. Well, I agree, and yet, uh, you know, so right now we're campaigning to disband the command council and cancel the state of disaster because look around you, we've got the lowest death numbers on record. But before that, our big campaign was to allow the elections to go ahead as the constitution requires. And uh, we went to the constitutional court and we won that. We had a chat with you. I'm very excited. You know, people got to vote. And uh, it was a messy election. Uh, it was very confusing. Turnout wasn't great. It wasn't quite as bad as many people have made it out to be. But it's historic. The ANC dropped below 50%. The ANC and the EFF combined dropped below two-thirds. Two Extrapolate those numbers forward to 2024. It, even if it just stays the same, uh, the capacity to change the constitution on a two-thirds majority basis goes away. And that immediately removes one of the greatest threats to young South Africans like myself who are looking for work. Uh, which is expropriation without compensation. Uh, that is a fundamental existential threat to, to jobs growth. And that goes away even if we stay at the same numbers in the 2024 elections. However, if you follow the trends and uh, if uh, opposition parties you know, snap at each other's heels a little bit, really focus their attention on taking down the behemoth sort of uh, conglomerate national de- democratic revolutionaries in the ANC and the EFF, then you actually see those two parties together coming below 50% and the possibility for coalition government that protects property rights, that protects job growth uh, uh, policies and actually implements them. And then you start that cycle in 2024, 2025, that regrowth cycle. And there really are you know, existential problems that are going to take decades to solve, but there are other low-hanging fruit that can be plucked uh, quite quickly that will, will will start to have an almost immediate effect on the prospects of out-of-work South Africans and social grant recipients and so on. So I think that 
I think that it's important not to try and promise the moon in a day. Uh, but I do feel very excited. This last couple of weeks for me, I've, I've had a spring in my step at the, at the new opening for possibilities uh, looking forward uh, to the next few years. And well, that's that's Israel. You said the low hanging fruit and the, and the new possibilities. What 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 are those in in your opinion? Sure. So so deregulating the labour market uh, is is a hard nosed one, but that's where I like to start. South Africa has the most outrageous, scandalous minimum wage policy on the planet. Most countries, and and let me just give a little ideological background here. You know, once upon a time, people said if you have any minimum wage at all, it's going to drive up unemployment uh, for various sort of armchair reasons without doing much uh, actual empirical work. And actually, the economists uh, who won the Nobel Prize just this year, a couple of weeks ago, uh, two of them from Princeton University, my alma mater, they were like, no, 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 let's do some research. Let's figure this out. And it turns out empirically that you can set a minimum wage that does not decrease unemployment, that might actually increase unemployment. Uh, might actually increase jobs because there are positive feedback effects. But you have to set it at the right level. And that means looking at the median wage, which is the average earner's income, as opposed to the average income, which is, you know, but distorted by the very rich guys at the top. Just the average person, the 50th person in a row of 100. What is his or her income? You take that, you halve that, and you make your minimum wage less than that. And then you can be improving uh, the incentives for employers to upskill their workers. You can improve the ability of workers to actually pay their way through in a sustainable fashion and, and, and grow, uh, through the economy. You can have a lot of salubrious effects, uh, without increasing unemployment. That's, That's if the minimum wage is half of the median wage or 30% of the median wage. Our minimum wage is equal to the median wage. There's literally no country on earth that's trying to enforce something as high as that. So right now you're making it illegal for South Africans to work, unfortunately, where their skills are because of a poor education system. Uh, and if you can't get your first job, you can't grow into a better second job. So people are getting stuck on that basis. You get you, you remove that. Uh, you, you, you say just like the government is paying people less than the minimum wage, uh, ordinary businesses can do that. You look at – so there's a low-hanging fruit. You look at uh, the, the taxes on petrol – it's a very low-hanging fruit to bring those down. And the multiplier effect on cheaper fuel costs is very well demonstrated. It's enormous. It's very good. Another very easy regulation, regulatory move is to unbundle ESCOM's power generation, allow the private sector to move in there because at this stage it can actually uh, uh, draw t loans at a cheaper interest rate than the national fiscus because we are commanded by such a, a, a sort of lunatic budget ex expansion. And then you lift the ceiling on South Africa's GDP growth, which in real terms uh, from a 2019 base is about 1%, and you lift that back up to 5%. Uh, that's a very easy move. It really takes a few swipes of the pen. You just need Pravin Gordon, uh, Ibrahim Patel, and so on to come to the party and allow it. So there's three easy ones. Boost power generation, deregulate the labor market, and, and here's the easiest one. Just scrap all the bad ideas that are on the horizon. Just say, you know what? We had a debate about expropriation without compensation. Turns out we couldn't get most South Africans enthused about it. Only a small minority of like vocal race nationalist Marxists ever managed to come to one or two rallies. But polling shows, including the ANC's own polling shows, this is not a popular issue. It, economists 
in the country and around the world, serious analysts have shown that this is going to cost more than it's going to do good. Venice Zimbabwe is the you know stark lesson to us all. We're going to abandon that policy. We're going to secure property rights. That in turn encourages investment. We're going to abandon the idea of national health insurance uh, on the back of the very poor performance of our public health policy in the face of the pandemic and the disaster of life. It's a domain that's had no consequences. We're just going to, you know, the lowest hanging fruit is to not implement the ideas that you haven't implemented yet, but that are really, really bad ideas. Uh, so if you get rid of those bad policies that are still in the pipeline, get rid of some of the more recently implemented policies like the minimum wage, which came in just in 2019, um, and other labor regulations, unbundle uh, SOEs, allow the private sector move, to move in there. And then I think you've got a, a winning formula for short-term growth. Now, let me just say one more thing. That short-term growth is not going to get us all the way there. You need a deep, medium-term driver of additional skills in the market. South Africa is plugged into a very global market, but we have the worst public school system in the world, bang for buck. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a quote from The Economist magazine, usually very sympathetic to South Africa. You need to solve the education problem. And we at the Institute have been punting this idea for many years, and through those years we've been wildly encouraged at other countries that have taken it up, other poor countries in Africa that have taken it up and are showing tremendous success. And that is the idea of putting the spending decision on what school your kids go to in the hands of poor South Africans rather than the hands of cater administrators. It's a very easy thing to do. Instead of kids being forced to go to the public school closest to them or to some public school being run by a Satu unionist, parents get a voucher that they can go and redeem at any school that's willing to take them. And, and that school then gets the money. So you allow a market competition that's funded by taxpayers who see the third-party positive effects of investing in, in, in the youth's education. And India, Nigeria, Sudan, the U.S., uh, various parts of South America, countries that have implemented tax vouchers have had outrageously positive results. Again, to refer to uh, those economists who just won a Nobel Prize. I read a paper by one of them who found a two standards of deviation plus difference between kids who who were in areas where they were allowed to use the tax voucher system versus kids in similarly poor households uh, just a few towns away. Two standard deviations is like, I mean, that's like the difference between, uh, you know, that's the difference between an F minus and a B plus. It's a huge difference. That's the difference between being like one and a half meters tall and being almost two meters tall. It is, it's, it's gargantuan. Um, and, and those results should speak for themselves. When we poll South Africans, we find that this is a massively popular idea. Most 70% of South Africans would rather have that than BE today. Absolutely. There, there's, so, there's no doubt about it. And there's some amazing, amazing ideas and solutions coming from, from think tanks, uh, such as yourself. We're going to take a quick break. And then we'll chat more about these amazing solutions uh, when we get back. Please do not go anywhere. We'll be right back now. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen. Indeed. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. I'm Rob Hutchinson, and we're speaking today to Gabriel Krauss from the uh, Institute of Race Relations around the happenings in the budget speech, the concerns, and especially around social grants and possible solutions. Gabriel, you mentioned 
uh, education as as one of the main important drivers there. And I couldn't agree more with with you on that. What what types of educational reform do you think we need to see in South Africa? I mean, we've got a, as you said, we've got one of the lowest um, uh, standards of education in in South Africa, which is a major concern for for generations going forward. But as you said, even before that, we need to. It's going to take several generations to to see the turnaround that we need in South Africa. But the basis for that would be a good education system. What possible solutions does uh, the IR or your colleagues have have uh, in, in store? Yeah. So 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 like I was saying, the, the simplest and most important fix is to put the decision about how the school is run, what school it is, in the hands of parents rather than in the hands of administrators. If you look at South Africa's data on absenteeism in schools, again, it's just, you know, on a list of 180 countries, we're like at 160. Uh, you have a lot of teachers who, who don't show up to work on Friday because Thursday was a bit of a fandango and then don't show up to Monday because the bubble ice is still going through. I, I mean, I'm laughing about it, but it's unnatural. One of the most natural human impulses is to try and take care of children. And that has been subverted in South Africa by a very artificial imposition of centralized, cater-deployed education administration together with a very um, militant union. We need to tap back into what's natural and what's good, and that is parents' concern for their own children. So if you give the administrative choice about what school to go to and where to go, uh, and how it should be run and, and to be able to punish schools that aren't being run well by pulling your kid out and sending them to a different one. Uh, we think that'll make a really important difference. And I was referring to some international experiences, India, Nigeria, and so on, where they've been seriously in, in, in encouraging results. I mean, not encouraging, like demonstrably excellent improvement. For less money, you're getting much more. Yes, and so this is, of course, the voucher system that, that, you, that you were talking about. Yeah. So that's good. But I just want to say that this is not a totally foreign idea to South Africa. Uh, when I first moved back to South Africa from the States, I actually worked with quite a few. I won't say any of their names. Because I don't want to get in trouble. But I worked with quite a few low-cost private schools. These are schools that are charging from 200 rand a month to 2,000 rand a month uh, to have children attend there. And... That, you know, a lot of them are franchised and spread throughout the country and, and they, they have pedagogic, uh, you know, uh, ideas about how to, uh, leverage, um, technology, how to leverage peer to peer teaching, uh, so that, uh, with very limited resources, if you can just keep the space safe, if you can just keep discipline tight and you can have children whose parents are motivated and so they're motivating their children because it's not just a freebie. This is like, you know, you're choosing to go here. This is an intense thing. They're getting amazing results. They've really been getting very encouraging results. So what the voucher system would do would just, it would just hugely expand the capacity of those private, low-cost private schools to reach more communities. At the same time, I don't think everyone should leave public schooling um, I spent some time at a, at a Model C school, King Edward's Preparatory School, KEPS in Johannesburg. It was a really good school, and I've got some f- friends are still there, and, and they've got some very positive things to say about it. Uh, I know some teachers at Hyde Park High and Greenside. You know, there, there are some good schools that are pushing through. Those schools only get better when there's more competition. Competition is key. If you feel the bite 
you know, and, and part of the reason some of those schools are good is because they still care about competing on the rugby field or on the netball court or in the academic uh, rankings. Uh, but it's just the kind of top tier that's currently competing for that prestige of being the best government school in the country. What you need to do is get the bottom and the middle schools to feel the bite of competition too. And that automatically happens if parents are pulling their kids out of those schools in droves at the worst run schools to send them to low cost private schools with a tax funded voucher. Because then those headmasters and teachers and so on know that unless they get their act together, unless they re remove the bad apples, unless they change the corporate culture of like missing classes and missing whole days, uh, they, they're going to lose their jobs. Right now you can't get fired for doing a bad job in a South African school. I mean, literally, you can be accused with credible evidence of assassinating another teacher in order to get the tuck shop rights so that you can make an extra penny and you still keep your job. Uh, that doesn't work. People need to be afraid of getting fired in order to improve their performance. And that's exactly what happens when parents have the ability to say, you know what, you're not the only school in town anymore and we're going to send our kids elsewhere. So that's important. University-level stuff is important too. Um, here you enter the more sort of battle ideas, battle of ideas side than the hard policy side. The IRR has paid close attention to the, I don't know, collapse of meritocracy, hard science, uh, sort of real centrist, classically liberal um, values at our universities. The fallist movement kind of metastasized and us versus them, grab it and break it rather than uh, hold it and build it sort of attitude. Uh, and that's very unfortunate. I can recommend, I'm currently, I just started reading David Benatar, who's the head of the philosophy department at UCT, his book about the demise of UCT, uh, a, a great South African institution that really needs to bounce back. I think some good work can be done to achieve that. Uh, but at the moment, I, I think from a policy perspective, the more urgent need is the high schools and the technical colleges. Uh, if you can get those going, if you can just get South Africans graduating with basic skills, respect for authority, respect for the rule of law, respect ultimately for the work ethic, uh, then people can learn on the job. If they're not, if they're not further barriers to them getting a job, they can learn on the job. I, my first jobs were manual labor for what would today be less than minimum wage. And it taught me a good lesson. At university, I learned a lot of fancy ideas, but I didn't really learn about waking up and making my own bed. I didn't learn about the feeling that you get from from giving something of yourself and your time and your and your talents, limited or great as they may be, just giving something of yourself to others in exchange for a material reward. Uh, I, I, in a way, no matter how good your education system is, the best it can do is help you get your foot in the door. You then need to learn what it feels like to work what that reward feels like, what that challenge feels like, what it feels like to kind of be grumpy and think, you know what, I don't feel like it today, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that's part of what makes me a good person. And and South Africa is so blessed with a history of of tenaciously hardworking people. My my favorite image in a way of, of the pre-94 era was by David Goldblatt, probably our preeminent photographer, taking photos Honestly, poor black South Africans uh, who were forced by apartheid to live horrendously far from work and would have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning to get on a bus or on a train. And people are, you know, he takes these photos of people sleeping on their feet as they make their way to work. And when I saw uh, those images first uh, at his last retrospective, I was standing next to someone who said, ah, shame.
and I was incensed. Of course, the, the situation is difficult, but the heroism is even more impressive. It's amazing to me how hard so many millions of South Africans worked in such a hostile environment. Today, we should be making that environment all the less hostile and being all the more encouraging and celebrity of the work, working class ethic. People who get up and do the daily grind are, are the backbone of this country. It's, it's not just rhetoric. It's a very, very real thing. Working class countries become fancy, fabulous, service delivery, innovative countries, not by teaching people there, but by people working very hard with the ideal ultimately of, of setting their children up to, 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 to live a better life and being proud of that contribution, feeling like, yeah, it's difficult, but I am doing the most amazing thing, which is to put my children on an even better footing. And, and that generational attitude is, is, is kind of why I started this thing out by saying, I do think ultimately, no matter what policy improvements you make, you can, you, you know, you can gain another two million jobs here, five million jobs there, seven million jobs. That's all very important to get us on the path. But ultimately, this is going to be a generational thing. Uh, some, some generations try to compete with their parents for like a feeling of victimhood, for a feeling of ach shame, for a feeling of like, you guys thought you had it bad, but you don't realize it's even worse today and it's terrible and it's defeatist and it's nihilist. And, and that doesn't get us anywhere. And, and, and standardly countries that have started out poor and all countries have started out poor, countries that have, have, have lifted themselves up have always had a generational competition where people say, you know what? I am proud that my parents managed to put me in a better position than they were. And I'm proud that I'm going to put my children in an even better position. And actually, I'm proud to belong to a generation that's going to do that. That, that, uh, that, that attitude, I think we're so close. I, I see that in our polling. Most South Africans are so close to that. They feel that around the dinner table. They say that in private interviews. But as soon as you hit the public square, it becomes break it and burn it and give more to me and 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 that's holding us back from reaching up it is it is Gabriel and you're absolutely correct and I think we have we do have a long way to go and it definitely starts with with re-educating our, our youth and I say re-educating rather than educating because part of that process would be an uneducating step as well or an un, unlearning step and we've got to get away from from that whole handout uh, mentality and into the self empowerment and take control of your own own life uh, mentality. And that can only start with the youth. And it, it's mm. it's easier to do with the youth. Gabriel, it's been an absolute wonderful, wonderful time chatting with you as usual. Um, unfortunately, we've we've run out of time. I wish we had another five hours because we could go to such depth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, man. I really enjoy it. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. But I'm sure the listeners and, and myself would definitely, we'd, we'd like to continue this conversation uh, over the next few weeks, perhaps, and we will definitely catch up. But I thank you. Thank you for, for sure, your time and, and wish you luck with all, all the policy formation and, and fantastic projects that the IR is doing. Can I say a quick sign-off, which is just that, you know, if you, you, want, if you think this state of disaster is madness and that it's you know, the government telling you when to go to sleep and when to wake up and, and when to shut businesses down and, and, mm. and, the, and really at a deep, serious level, the lack of parliamentary oversight for our command council, so-called. If you think that this is getting in the way of South Africa turning back in the right direction, 
please visit irr.org.za or visit the Daily Friend and see our petition uh, to disband the command cell in the state of disaster. You know, if things get bad again, we can we can switch it back on. But right now, we've got to face the facts on the ground, uh, yes. and we've got to get Parliament back in business. Uh, so we've got already well over 10,000 petition sign-ons, and, and that's giving us uh, a real authority to address the presidency, to address the Kochta minister, to address parliament and 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 uh, and cabinet, and 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 tell them what's what. So you know, lend your voice. Uh, we really appreciate it. It, it really helps us uh, to do our work. Fantastic, and and 100% support from from our side on that. It's the first step to economic recovery. Thanks again, Gabriel. And that brings us to the end of the Dear Parliament show today.